really my goal to be a missionary and a teacher and fulfill that pastoral role as a teaching pastor. And so we were called to a most humble position in southern Mexico, not very far from the Guatemala border. And lo and behold, after a few Sundays, we went to the mountains with one of the pastors, and there was a festival in the church, wonderful time. We were going to have movies on the life of Christ and celebrate the Lord's Day with him and all of that. And so the pastor said, you know, Pastor Kuiper, we want you to baptize the children that are here today to be baptized. And there were about 10 of them, I think. There were a number of children. And so Pastor Francisco, uh, when the time came, uh, read the form in Chol, and then I was going to baptize, of course, in Spanish. And then he did a most extraordinary thing to me. He raised the cup or the little bowl that had water in, and he said, now we're going to sanctify this water and make it holy in the Presbyterian church. And of course, he was following a Catholic tradition. Later, I had to talk to him and say, you know, the water doesn't cleanse a person or have this magical power like our form said. The water is, however, highly symbolic and really demonstrates grace to us, but the water itself does not save. We had a nice discussion over that. Many times, you know, as Christians, we need to share and make sure that we have our understanding of Scripture correct. I also wanted to say I didn't mean to not include the congregation because we heard about God and his participation and his grace and love and mercy to our little grandson here, this child, member of the congregation, Basil Elias. Uh, we heard about that. We heard about how uh, the parents make their vows and promises to bring this child up in the Lord. Thirdly, uh, we heard about how he, when he attains the age of knowledge and full responsibility, needs to make his profession of faith, that sort of completes the baptism cycle. But the other important thing that our form also mentions is that the congregation participates in this. So you participate in this too. And I've sometimes thought about that because I've been in a number of congregations and how about people who move around in the congregation that moves around? Well, we really mean the family of God. And so I hope that you could say too, I do make a commitment to this child and to our children, and here's the key word, to let them come to Christ, to encourage them to come to Christ. And so that is the title of our message today, Letting the Little Children Come to Me. We're going to read from Matthew 19, just a few verses. Later we'll read the parallel uh, readings, selections, and we'll consider this passage in its wider context, Let the Children Come to Me. So the reading is really quite brief. Matthew 19, verse 13 through 15. And the word of God says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these 
When he had placed his hands on them, he went from there. May the Lord add his special blessing to the reading of this word. As we begin our thoughts on letting the little children come to me, I ask a question, and the question is, what would be the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? Uh, We can't live in a world of fear and panic and anxiety, but sometimes we think about those things, don't we? What would be the worst thing that could happen to me? Uh, Maybe maybe, uh, someone would answer, the worst thing that could happen to me is that my house would go up in one of these fires and that everything would be destroyed and that, you know, all my family pictures and my belongings and you know, that, that beautiful possession I have, maybe a boat or an old car or something, it just all blow up in flames. Another person might say, you know, I've dreamed about being X for many years, and I'm going along this path of my ideal, and there's a lot of disturbances in my way, and, and I can't seem to get to where I need to be, and so I'm struggling with the way I have to go as far as a career in life. That's a hard struggle. Another person says, you know, I'm really afraid of cancer, and that would be the worst thing that could happen to me. I've had a loved one go through cancer, and I've seen the treatments, and I've seen the difficulty, and I've seen, you know, the venom they have to put in the person to try to arrest that cancer. I've seen the operations. It just, it's totally bummed me out and fatigued me out and I just hope I never have to go through cancer. You know, I've prayed that one to the Lord. (laughs) I have to have conversations with the Lord about things that are fearful to us. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? A car accident and being paralyzed, maybe death from COVID-19. Some of those things have really been scary. You see the people in India, India dying in the parking lots because they can't get oxygen and they're gasping for air and, and it's no pleasant thing. There are terrible difficulties in this world. What would be the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, Jesus talks about that. And he doesn't talk in those terms. And that is the framework or the context of these words that we've read today. What would be the worst thing that could happen to you? And Jesus says very clearly that the worst thing that could happen to a person is not entering the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Not entering the kingdom of heaven. You must do everything you possibly can do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And let me add, help others to enter too. That's the framework of our passage. I want to just talk to you just for a minute about this framework as introduction in chapter 18. found that especially prevalent in chapter 18. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That is the wrong question to ask Jesus. But it's a good question. Disciples have to learn a lot. We have to learn a lot. You know, and... Jesus responds responds to that prideful uh, question where disciples were making too much of themselves, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, making too much of themselves. 
by saying that you must be humble. You must be like this little child that he called. You must change to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he gives a lot of teachings on the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in the seventh verse and following there, he talks about things like, uh, don't miss the kingdom of heaven. And, and if, if your, your sense of sight or smell or hearing or taste or touch gets in the way, cut it off. You know, that's hyperbole. That's sort of an exaggeration, but it makes the point. Don't miss the kingdom of heaven because there's an evil one who tries to get into the heart and he does it through the senses. And so control your senses, the Lord says. Then he talks about the lost sheep. That little sheep, bowed on the mountain, it's only one loss. What's the matter about just one loss? And it's just a little sheep, you know? It's not even a big sheep. <laughs> Goes along with that child idea. It's in a little crevice. It's caught. It needs help. And the good shepherd will go high and low and hunt and find everyone who is supposed to be in the kingdom of heaven will be there, even the little ones will be there. The kingdom of heaven. If there's a sin or offense, it's serious business in the church and it must be confronted because the kingdom of heaven is open through the preaching of the gospel, through the repentance of faith and faith, repentance of sin and faith in Christ. And so sin is a very important thing and it must be handled in the church. Many times it's not. But that's the kingdom of heaven too. You see, Jesus continues that the kingdom of heaven is all about grace, and that means that we must learn to forgive. And you have the unmerciful servant who was pardoned of so much and would not forgive one penny, but grabs a debtor and holds him by his neck and sends him to prison and will not show forgiveness. And he does not enter the kingdom of heaven because he has not learned about grace. The kingdom of heaven this is the pearl of great price and we must attain it at whatever cost. And so that is the context and the framework of let the little children come to me for to such is the kingdom of heaven. So we come to this barrier. Sometimes even in situations that are very special and very kingdom-oriented, <laughs> don't let the little children come. <laughs> That's what happens here in our passage. Don't let the little children come. Some of the parents in our story bring little children to the wise, kind rabbi. It's a young rabbi. Jesus never had any children of his own, but he certainly loved the children. Great compassion on them. The parents know of Christ's kindness and his gentle spirit, and they want Jesus to simply place his hands on them and give them a Hebrew blessing. Well, the disciples are aghast. 
Chagrin, dismayed, repelled. They rebuke those who brought the little children into Christ's presence. Now, this really surprises us because the disciples are supposed to be bridges, open doors, bringing people into the kingdom, to the feet of Christ. They're supposed to be guides and helpers, humble servants of Christ. And here they build a wall, a barrier. They fence themselves around the parents who are bringing these little children and prohibit them from coming. They don't want the children's approach. Jesus has more important things to do, and these children are a detriment in the thing that we are trying to promote. Oh, people of God, they are misinterpreting, disrupting, and distancing themselves from the holy ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their actions contradict the kingdom as they demonstrate a pride and exclusion, a lack of grace. They act as if they are Jesus' handlers and they control the access to him. By the way, in the gospel, who really attains access to Jesus? I know a paralyzed man who's coming down through a roof. He had no way to get there. His friends, their faith, the paralyzed man's faith, they open the door, they let him down on cords, and Jesus sees the man on Sunday or on Sabbath, and they're expression culturally, and he heals them. I note a man standing by, or sitting rather, by the side of the road, snuggled up in his beggar's cloth. He doesn't have a hope in the world. Everybody's going by on the way to Damascus, and he's marginated and sitting at the periphery of this crowd. But he hears something. They say it's Jesus, and Jesus has been a healer, and so he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he lifts his hands and throws his cloak and tries to get there, and he can't get there. And Jesus comes to Bartimaeus. And in that day, Bartimaeus received his sight. Then there was that, I'm just giving you a few examples. There are dozens of them. That Canaanite woman, she was the foreigner. She was in the area of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman, some translations say Syrophoenician. Remember, they were the people who were in the promised land who were to be expelled. Many of them were not. Most of them were not. But she had heard about Jesus, and she had a huge problem, and it was that her daughter was demon-possessed. And so she came to Jesus humbly, begging the crumbs on the bread, and talked to Jesus about what her need was, and Jesus healed her daughter. And then there was that woman who managed to just touch the hem of his garment. She was being scourged by Satan, maybe a prostitute or some kind of a person who had had problems. She just reached through and touched the hem of his prayer shawl, and she felt the healing power going through her. And then there was that man who hung out in trees. 
Zacchaeus, that little guy, in Spanish we say chaparito, the little guy hung out in sycamore trees and he saw Jesus and Jesus looked up there because Jesus knew everybody who was in his panorama. He knew everybody, what they were all doing. I can't possibly watch all of you and seeing if you're paying attention, but Jesus, if he were here, he could. <laughs> and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus became a member of the kingdom of God. That's the way Jesus is. He came to seek and save those who were lost, and that includes every one of us. In our story, the disciples are the problem. And Jesus will teach them a most important lesson, let the little children come. In our world today, there's a philosophy, and I um, am also prepared as a professional teacher. I have a master's degree in education. So I've studied the issue of education somewhat in the way that children learn and young people learn. And one time I found an important writer named John Jack Rousseau, lived in the 18th century. And I thought, this man is relevant for today because basically what Rousseau said is, let the children do whatever they want. Now, Rousseau wrote this treatise on education, the nature of man. You know, many times think of Rousseau as a political thinker, but he was political, but he also thought a lot about education. And in that treatise, he said, uh, you know, there's this little child, Emile, and I want to educate Emile, and I'll bring him up in a different way because I believe that that child is pure and has no corruption in him and the biggest problem of a child is the adults around him. <laughs> because sin is learned, or evil things are learned only. We're born perfectly. And so his idea of education was what is called, and still practiced widely today, non-directive education. And he went to the extreme, farther than most do today, but he said that um, the educator will simply follow that child around, look for his natural goodness, his talents for his direction, and magically it will blossom forth at the right time. Then the educator must be careful to capitalize on those tendencies of the student. But supreme above all is his freedom and his goodness. Now some of these educational ideas are good. We want to make sure that children are appropriately educated, that we go according to their talents and abilities, which we understand is God-given to them, but we also need to correct them. But Rousseau, no. Rousseau said, let the little children come, do whatever they want. He had the faith in this innate goodness, and he believed that the key to building a better world and a better humanity is giving this freedom. Several years ago, I met a man whose name is Michael. Uh, Michael was brought up in a Christian family, but um, he had some um, questions on his way. As he entered the university, in the town where we were, he began to study psychology and came in under the influence of a number of professors at that university. And they filled him with lies and deception. 
in his maturing uh, process, in his college education, and they deceived him, and he fell into the labyrinth of atheism. And he continues to accept fatalistic evolution and naturalistic causation as his foundation, and he does not believe that God exists. Everything is natural. Now, the difficult part is here that he had married a wonderful Christian woman and has three children with her. It's been a problematic and difficult thing for this couple. She married him as a Christian, and then he fell away and did not keep his vows and promises to the Lord. We pray for Michael. We ask that God will be gracious to him because the church needs to pray for each person who is errant and who has fallen away from grace, that God will, as he did those, that one little sheep, find him and draw him back. We always are optimistic and we always pray and we always think the best and trust the Lord. But to this point, Michael does not believe. He has told Rachel that when his children get to the age of discretion, he's going to try to, to influence them to become atheist as he is. What a difficult thing. Michael is saying, let the children do whatever they want. Whatever. That's not our approach. Jesus has something important to teach us. He contradicts the disciples and some in our modern world, and he commands us. This is not just a suggestion, people of God. This is a way in which we shall live. Let the children come. So now we're going to read the parallel passages, which are Mark 10, 13 through 16. And then we'll go to Luke, and we'll see a little wider understanding of this passage. Mark 10, 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children to, into his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. And then Luke 18, 15 and following. And that says, Luke 18, 15. People were also bringing babes to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him, but 
Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not, re not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who, does not, who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Let the children come to me. Four quick points regarding Jesus' divine infallible teaching. First, from Mark, I'm going to use different words from different accounts here to kind of bring the full orb of it. From Mark, he was indignant. He was indignant. Now, there are different translations and the Greek allows for that. Other words that are similar are he was irritated or he was angered or he was irked. I see that as a strong response from Christ. Jesus also became indignant at other times when he turned over the tables in the temple. Sometimes he rebuked the disciples for asking them, him, asking him for places on his left and right. When does Jesus become indignant? When there's evil in the air, when Satan is around and he's attacking. Jesus becomes indignant. It is an evil act to prohibit the children from coming to Christ. Period, final. It's an evil act. And that evil act will be punished on the day of judgment. I think it's so serious. It'd be better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the sea or into the abyss, says Jesus, and to offend a little child. It is an evil act. And we need to proclaim that in our society. It is an evil act to prohibit the children from coming to Christ. We are to encourage the children to come to Christ and not to sin, Matthew 18, 5. Secondly, Jesus gathers the little children to himself. From Luke 18, 16, he says, he calls the children. He calls them. Yeah, bring them forward. This is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God who created us in our inmost being, who knit us together in our mother's womb and he calls the little children to him. He has all authority, all power, all knowledge, and he knows the children and he calls them to himself. And we as adults need to respond to that loving call. I can't remember a time, and I bet many of you could say this with me in your heart, when I did not love Jesus from being the littlest child. And why is that? Someone was obedient to Christ. Someone taught me, nurtured me, and brought me by my little hand to Jesus in a variety of ways. Jesus gathers the children to himself. Third, 
Matthew 19, 14, Jesus taught us to bring our and other little children to himself. We are to place no hindrance before him. To such is the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's so important to bring our children to the baptismal fount. We are to place no hindrance. It's important to the Lord. Our children matter. We believe in the covenant. Genesis 12, 15, 17. Acts 2, that these promises of God include our children, they include ourselves, our children, and those who are far off, others who are going to come into the kingdom. We believe that baptism symbolizes the work of Christ for us, and that's why it is a sacrament, and especially that part about him dying on the cross for all who will repent and believe the gospel. That is the heart of the gospel, and baptism shows that because those who are buried under the water and do not come out necessarily drowned and end up condemned. But if we are buried in the water and we come out, the symbol is we are resurrected to new life. Romans 6, and that's also the symbol that's related to being washed and cleansed in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. We bring our little children to Christ as infants, and we must continue bringing our little children to Christ over and over and over and over and over again as they grow. Oh no, don't let the children do whatever they want. Jesus says, let them come to me. And fourthly, Jesus takes them in his arms, he places his hands on them, and he blesses them, Mark 10, 16. Matthew indicates that Jesus prayed for them. He blessed them. You know, maybe he said something like to the little child looking at that special little person, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his, turn his face toward you and give you his shalom. His parents and Christ's followers, we want to also bless the children and pray for them as they grow physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Parents should never quit praying for their children. Never. And the last point is guiding the children to Christ. Here I want to be a little more specific on what we can do and give some suggestions for opening the doors and assisting Christ as we do in a humble way that they may enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already mentioned blessing them and praying for them. When a child... Um, you know, when a child is ill, that child needs prayer. Not just medicine, not just doctors. That child needs holy healing, prayer. I believe that healing comes from God. When a child is bullied, that child needs counseling and prayer. 
And I can assure you, Sam, and later you can tell Jennifer, your child will be bullied. That happens in the world. Most of us have experienced that. We need to pray. Or if our child is bullying someone else, we need to act and pray and direct. Charles Stanley comments about his mother who raised him alone. His father died and his mother has, was called on to raise him alone. He came home from school when he was young with these on his report card. His mother, being a very godly woman, took him to his bedside and put him on his knees and prayed with him for a half an hour about his bad report card. She said, oh Lord, help Charles to do better in school. Help him to get better grades. And Charles was kind of subjected to his mother's fervent prayers for him on his behalf. And the next day she did the same thing and she did the same thing the next day and little Charles was getting a little bit frustrated so finally he started to work harder and started to get good grades thinking that his mother would, you know, lighten up a little bit. But when he got a next report card and he did better, his mother marched him right over to his bed again and said, Lord, thank you that Charles is able to do better and they prayed for another half an hour. <laughs> you know, we need to keep praying for our children, and maybe our children pray for us too. That would be very appropriate. We also need to bring our children to be baptized. I have mentioned this, but I want to say that in baptism, there are four parties involved. The first one is the Lord. He is the primary party. He's the initiator. He's the guarantor of the covenant. But there's a second party. It's the parents. They make the promises to bring up their children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. And then there's the third party, the congregation, who stands in union with the parents and also makes their commitment to these children. And finally, it is the child himself, the baby who will confirm these promises and take hold of the covenant and a communion of life and will make his profession of faith and we long to see that day and say that I too want to be a follower of Jesus and enter his kingdom. Several other very brief suggestions are we need to wholeheartedly support Christian education. In a world where family devotions are seldom practiced, we need to practice them. Family altar, turn the cell phones off, the televisions, all the other electronic media, and have a time of eating with your children and a time of scripture reading and prayer in an appropriate way for them. We need to promote that children are present when family visiting occurs. Many churches don't even have family visiting, but it's very important that the elders visit the families and there's family visiting and that the elders pay attention to the children. I remember that when I was young. My twin brother Dave, he was very interested that the elders would come to visit us and they would ask the children, uh, questions. You know, how is Sunday school? Are you learning about the Lord? Do you have anything special to pray for? Would you like to tell us anything? And my brother Dave raised his little hand when he was about five years old and he says, 
Yes, elders, I have something to tell you. And the elders listened very well to Dave. And he said, here it is. My dad watched a football game on Sunday and he drank a bottle of beer. <laughs> and it was all the elders could do not to burst out in laughter. But we remember that to this day. The innocence of a child. The innocence. We need to include them. You know, they say things sometimes that are just what we would expect, but we need to include them. The last one's very serious. Keep track of your children and the media they consume. This is where Satan is entering the senses of many young people, the media they consume. There are many things we can do as Christians to fence Satan out of our home. And one of them is watching the accounts they might have on Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, cell phones, iPads, computers. These are very important things. Our children are holy to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, and we must promote their sanctification. I could go on and on and on, and you have borne with me in a most lovely way. Thank you for doing that. But I want to give a word to grandparents today. I think they're special. I feel special and great and privileged to have grandchildren, this new little baby. It's hope. It's promise. You know, man, where, we're, where we were staying in a campground, he said to us, um, oh, you have a grandchildren. That's so, grandchild, that's so nice, he said. But, you know, I, I don't really know how you can bring a child into the world today with all the problems, you know, and he went on the problems. And I said, well, um, thank you for sharing that with me, but you know, I think we can bring a child into the world because we have hope. And we know that a certain person named Jesus, he's coming to make all things new and establish his kingdom. And I have hope that things are going to be better. I, I know all this, everything you said is true. And I just encourage that man to read the Gospels. I didn't want to push at him too hard. But I said, you need to read the Gospels and find out who Jesus is and what he offers you, hope. I could go on and on, but let me say about grandparents, that I had such wonderful, loving, caring Christian grandparents, their extreme love and their acceptance made the Gospel attractive to me. Um, I want to experience the realization of the kingdom of heaven in the presence of Christ and holding the hands of my grandpa and grandma. And grandparents can mean a lot. Or they can be distant and not mean much. So I give the challenge to grandparents. Very important, grandpa and grandma. In a moment, we're going to sing my grandma's favorite hymn, and I thank you for doing that. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for giving us this word, letting the little children, encouraging us to let them come. And we want to live that, and we want to practice that, and we want to have them in the kingdom eternally with you and with us. That is our great hope. In the name of Christ, our Redeemer, we pray. 
Amen. The song's number 377, Heed the Pearly Gates Will Open. <laughs>